Welcome everyone. It's great to see you all. Thanks so much for coming out on Wednesday evening. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce Mike Pilavachi from Soul Survivor. Um, Mike uh, was with us last year in February, but I first met Mike, I think, more than 15 years ago in uh, Southern Africa at Bryanston, the church that I was a part of, and uh, we did some things there with Matt and Matt Redman, and it was a wonderful time, and that church is history, and uh, that's where I got to know Mike, and so Mike, welcome, it's great to have you, and uh, when we arrived 10 years ago in Watford with our suitcases, Mike was the guy that lent us some knives and forks and plates, and we could eat for the couple of weeks that we were waiting uh, for our stuff to arrive, so thank you for that, Mike, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, that's true, and uh, he's Greek, and so he and... uh, Mario had some wonderful conversations that I wasn't a part of, but uh, Mike, it's wonderful to have you, and we're really um, looking forward to having you minister, and uh, we open our hearts and to you and to the Holy Spirit, and thanks for being here. Really appreciate it, eh? Well, um, it's been exciting watching uh, your growth and uh, your development and all that the Lord has been doing among you. And what he's going to continue uh, to do among you. Uh, I just really want to just teach, hopefully, uh, quite simply and very hopefully, briefly-ish. So we make time time to see what what else the Lord wants to do by his spirit. Uh, On a question uh, that all of us ask at some stage. Uh, If there's one thing that that nearly every Christian uh, wants to know or wants to grow in, The question is, how do I move in the power of the Spirit? How do I move in the power of the Spirit? Because I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels, and when I read the story of the early church and the Acts of the Apostles, I see see a church, I see a a group of believers who were dynamically led by the Spirit of God, and stuff happened. And then I look at my own life, and I think, hmm, there's a little bit of a gap here. And uh, how do I bridge the gap? What is it? What is it uh, that's the missing link? And in order to look at that, there's no better place to start than Jesus. And uh, we'll start in uh, Luke chapter 3. In verse 21, we read this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized also. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, that is an amazing experience. And it's truly a Trinitarian experience. You know, as the son of God came out of the waters of baptism, the spirit of God came upon him and the voice of the father came to him. And uh, uh, you would think that that was all Jesus needed in order to move in the power of the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, and to hear the voice of his Father. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I love being affirmed. I love it when people say nice things to me. For example, if at the end of this meeting, some of you were to come up to me and say something like, Mike, you were magnificent. The way you moved, the way you grooved, the way you, you were just incredible. I would like that. I like that. I prefer it to what normally happens. 
after I've spoken, which is people come up and say, Mike, you were long. You were very long. And where were you going? But if there's one thing I have to say that I prefer to being affirmed, it is to be publicly affirmed. I go quite hysterical at that. In fact, I love that so much that sometimes if someone comes up and whispers to me, Mike, you were magnificent, I find myself saying, pardon? Could you say that again, only louder? Do you know, when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, he was not only filled with the Holy Spirit, he was not only affirmed by his Father, he was publicly affirmed. The Father didn't whisper, hey, son, I love you, I'm pleased with you, but shh, don't tell anyone. The father shouted from heaven, this is my boy. I love you. I'm pleased with you. This is my son. Now you would think that that was all that Jesus would need in order to move in the power of the spirit. I want to suggest that wonderful though that was, that, wasn't, that was only half of it. What was the first thing that the Holy Spirit did after he filled Jesus? We read this. In chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. He was led by the Spirit into the desert. And in fact, the Greek phrase there uh, that is translated uh, led by the Spirit could just as accurately be translated driven by the Spirit into the desert. It's a strong phrase. The Holy Spirit who filled Jesus, the first thing he then does is he drives him into the desert. Now, if that happened to us, and when that does happen to us, our first response is, what went wrong? You know, I've just had this amazing experience. I've shaken, I've fallen, I've laughed, I've cried, I've flown. And how the heck did I end up in the desert? How did I end up here? Somewhere we went off course. I've ended up in the devil's place. But you know, the Holy Spirit did that. He drove Jesus into the desert. Why? Why? Well, we find the answer in, uh, chap- in verse 14 of chapter 4. After he spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by the devil, we read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You see, the spiritual equation is this. Filled with the Spirit, plus led by the Spirit into the desert, equals returning in the power of the Spirit. Now, we all love the filled with the Spirit bit. I love the filled with the Spirit bit. I want more of that. We all long for more of that. But do you know what? We're not so keen on the led by the Spirit into the desert. But both are necessary. Both are necessary. And we see that not only in the life of Jesus, but we see that in the life of many of God's people throughout the scriptures. (laughs) Joseph is a classic. He has dreams as a young man of 17. And so God, because the dreams are from God, God prepares him for the fulfillment of the dreams. He's sold into slavery. He's accused of rape. He's abandoned in a dungeon for years. And then he's ready. He's ready for for fulfillment. And that's how it works. That's how it works. 
And we love the dreams, we love the promises, but we want them yesterday. And you know what? The people, the people who God uses, they have, they have a touch of the dungeon about them. They have a touch of, I'm forgotten. Why is it taking so long? Why is God passing me by? Why does everyone else get it and not me? Do you know, I became a Christian when I was 15 years old, and I had dreams when I was 15. I had such dreams. I wanted, by, by, I, I, want, I wasn't sure whether I should take my, my O-levels in those days, G, GCSEs, or whether I should just go into full-time revival ministry and usher in the second coming before breakfast. <laughs> but you know, God didn't open the doors. He closed all the doors for my ushering in the second coming revival ministry. And I had to go to university. It was a nightmare. And then, get this, till I was 29, I languished as an accountant. I died a thousand deaths. In my autobiography, which I will write before I die, my 20s will be entitled, The Wasted Years. I sat chained to a desk doing a job that I was completely useless at and saying, God, where are you? Where are you? I wouldn't change that for a moment now, even though I hated it at the time. You see this in the life of Moses. You see Moses, even though he was a Hebrew, he was brought up in Pharaoh's household, a prince of Egypt, and he had the best education Egypt could buy. He had everything. And at the beginning of the story in Exodus, you see Moses is walking along and um, an Egyptian slave driver is beating up a Hebrew slave. Moses looks to the right and to the left. When he thinks no one's looking, he kills the Egyptian and buries him. The next day, he's walking along and he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting. He gets in between them. He tries to deal with the situation. Do you know one of the Hebrew slaves says something very revealing? He says, who made you... Lord and Master over us. You see, Moses thought he was God's gift. I mean, after all, I've had the education. I've had the upbringing. I'm God's man of power for the hour. And this Hebrew slave says, who made you Lord and Master over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses realizes he's been caught. He's been found out. He flees into the desert of Midian. And then one day, in the desert of Midian, he comes across a bush that's a little bit different to all the other bushes. And God speaks to him from the burning bush, and God commissions him to go back into Egypt and to set his people free, that they might worship the Lord. What's Moses' reaction? Moses' reaction is, oh Lord, send someone else. I'm not good enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I can't speak. I don't know what to do. Send someone else. What happened to change Moses from a man who thought he was God's gift, from a man who interfered when he didn't need to interfere, into someone who says, Lord, send someone else. There must be someone better than me. I'll tell you what happened. Forty years in the desert happened. He was in that desert for 40 years. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a desert. We don't get much chance in England. Um, but there was one time I went to a desert. I went to California. And uh, we went to what's known as Death Valley. And we got a hire car. 
and we drove out for a day trip to the desert in our air-conditioned hard car. And it was the middle of the summer. And as we went into the desert, the, the, the thermometer thing was going higher and higher, 40 degrees, 41. This is amazing. It must be boiling outside. Oh, can you see? Can you see? It's like shimmering. It's shimmering everywhere. And then when we got in the middle, we said, should we stop the car and get out? Let's stop the car and get out. We stopped the car. We got out. And we stood there in the desert. And we said, wow, it's so hot. It's so dry. Look as far as the eye can see. Sand. Listen. It's very quiet. This is amazing. And then we got back into our air-conditioned car and we drove back to L.A. That's what happens on a day trip to the desert. But after a week in the desert, it's very hot. It's very dry. There's a lot of sand. It's very quiet. After a month in the desert, hot, dry, sand, quiet. After six months in the desert, Guys, Moses was 40 years in that flipping desert. No wonder after 40 years in the desert, when God says, go and set my people free, Moses' response is, I can't speak. You see, that's what the desert does. It strips you. It strips you of confidence in yourself. It strips you of confidence in your own ability. It strips you of all the stuff that you relied on. So that you say, God, I can't do it. And do you know what I love about, about God's reaction? When, when, Moses, when Moses said all that, you know, you know Moses said, how, how, how will I know it's you? I can't speak. I can't do this. Now, I, you would expect God to say, you know, you know like, like, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, Mo, Moses says at one point to God in that account, he says, who am I that I should go? Who am I? I am but a nothing. I am but a worm. And you know, sometimes before I go somewhere to speak that I've never been before, I sometimes say to my friends, I don't know why I'm going there. Who am I? I am but a worm. I am, not, I am nothing. And I say that so that they can say to me, oh, come on, Mike, you're all right. You're all right. You know, he's gone, gone. Now, you know what? When Moses said to the Lord, who am I? that I should go. Do you know, the Lord didn't say, oh, come on, Moses, I've heard you speak. I've heard worse. Do you, know, do you know how the Lord replies? When Moses says, who am I? Do you know what the Lord says? The Lord says to him, I'll go with you. <laughs> if I was Moses, I, my response would be, that's very nice, Lord. Thank you for that. That's a nice little thought. You'll go with me. Um, I don't know how to put this, but that's not actually the answer to my question. Let me see if I can rephrase the question. The question went something along the lines of, who am I that I should go? Do you see what happens? The Lord doesn't answer Moses' question. Why doesn't the Lord answer Moses' question? Because Moses is asking the wrong question. Moses is asking, who am I? When he should have been asking, who are you? Because that's the only question that matters. 
That's the only question that matters. Who are you? Who are you? But the Lord anoints Moses, and Moses goes back to Egypt in his weakness. And then he leads the people out of their captivity towards the promised land. And there are reasons for the desert. God sends us into desert times, into desert places for a reason. I used to think the desert was the devil's place. I haven't for a long time. I've spent a lot of time in the desert. I found it to be God's place. It really is God's place. And towards the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert, and by the way, have you noticed that Moses spent 40 years leading the people of Israel in the desert having just spent 40 years on his own in the desert as preparation. Now, I'm telling you, people of God, if there is any justice in heaven, if there is any justice in heaven, Moses' mansion will have a swimming pool, it will have a lake, it will have a waterfall, and it will have views of the ocean. You see, he spends 40 years on his own in the desert as preparation for 40 years with the people of Israel. But towards the end of their 40 years, there's an amazing, there's an amazing little scripture in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I, I, they're basically, I think there are, there are three major lessons that God teaches us in the desert. I want to look at those three lessons and then we're going to pray and see what the Lord wants to do. And the first two lessons can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is when the people of Israel, they can see the promised land. They're not far away. They can see it, but it's not theirs yet. And this is what the Lord says in year 39 and a half or 40. Verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, etc. What's the first thing that God does in the desert? He humbles us. And he humbles us by stripping away all the things that we relied upon. You see, in the desert, it's dry. In the desert, it's inhospitable. In the desert, it's lonely. In the desert, all the props are taken away. And you know what? The desert lasts for 40 years or 40 days. What does 40 years mean? Because you know numbers in the Bible mean, you know, three is the number of God. uh, uh, Seven is is the number of completeness, of of God's completeness. Six is the number of man. What does 40 mean? Now, theologians will tell you all sorts of things. I'll tell you what 40 means. 40 means a long time. Because do you know when you're in the desert... It always feels longer than it should be. It always feels longer. How long? This seems like an eternity. This seems like 40. This seems like forever. It always seems longer than than it needs to be, but it isn't. And the first thing that happens in the desert, God strips us of reliance on ourselves And he humbles us and he shows us our weakness. Someone who I respect and admire as a Christian leader said this uh, a long time ago. A guy called John Wimber. He said, said, never, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. You know, there's something about knowing, knowing your weaknesses, knowing your frailties. 
that makes you dependent on him instead of independent. And you see, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a scripture that comes three times in the Bible. You know, in the scripture, when God says something once, he means it. But did you know when God says something twice, he really means it. But if God says something three times, he really, really means it. And there's this one scripture that comes three times in Proverbs, in uh, Peter's first letter, and in the letter of James. And it's this verse, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean, he opposes the proud? That means if, if you're proud and you're playing a game of tennis, he's on the other side of the net. He opposes you. He's on the other side. He gives grace to the humble. And so, we have a choice. We either humble ourselves under God's almighty hand, or he will humble us if he loves us. And I'm going to tell you this for free. I have learned this through experience. It's, it's much more pleasant to humble yourself. It's much less painful to humble yourself than for him to humble you. Do you know, years ago, I was, after I was an accountant, God rescued me for a life of drudgery, boredom, and misery. And I became youth pastor at a church in Chorley Wood, not far from here. And uh, our church started a, a, a camp called New Wine. And because I was the youth worker, I did the youth work at that camp. And it, the first year in 1989, uh, it, was, it went all fine. There were about 3,000 at the camp and 500 were teenagers. And um, I kind of did the youth work and it all went fine. But on the last day, something amazing started happening. The teenagers started coming up to me and they started saying things like, Mike, could you sign our Bibles? And I thought, oh, wow. Oh, wow. You want me to sign your Bible? So I wrote a little Bible verse and said, with love, Mike. And then they started asking me to sign their T-shirts. And one little girl had a cast on her arm and I had to sign that. And then on the last afternoon, these two girls came running up to me and they said, Mike, could you sign our Bibles? And I said, but of course. And then I said, but I, I have no pen. And one of them said, here, borrow mine. So I wrote a little Bible verse and I signed my name and then she asked for her pen back, which I thought was a little rude at the time. But then as they were leaving, I promise you, as they were leaving, I heard this girl say to her friend in an excited voice, she said, he touched my pen, he touched my pen. And I thought, oh, wow, I have finally arrived. I have become a minor Christian celebrity. And I went round the rest of the afternoon waving at everyone, as Her Majesty would do, you know. And then that evening, the last night, everyone came together for communion. The adults, the children, and the teenagers. And as I walked into the auditorium, I thought, where shall I sit this evening? And I thought, you know, I think this evening I'll sit with the ordinary people. So I sat with a family I knew. And I sat next to a little girl called Sarah, who was seven years old at the time. And we came to the point in the communion service where just, we were just about to take communion and everyone was still. All 3,000 were just still for a moment as we contemplated what we were going to do. And in that moment of holy silence, seven-year-old Sarah turned to me and she said in the sort of voice only a seven-year-old girl could have, she said, Mike... Have you always been fat? Or is it just recently you got like that? It's not that funny. Do you know at first no one in the row in front turned round 
But you know, after a while, the whole road began to shake. And then they all started turning around and everyone around me was like pointing at me. Ha ha, that's so funny. Ha, have you always been fat? Ha ha ha. And I was dying inside. And I put my arm around Sarah and I tried to give my best bless the little children look, you know. And all the time they were smiling. Oh, oh, that's so funny. I couldn't wait for that meeting to end. As soon as that meeting ended, I left. I went somewhere quiet and I was so cross with God. I said, God, how could you let that happen to me? How could you allow that to happen? How could you let something like that happen to a minor Christian celebrity? And do you know, that was the point. I started to think that I was a minor Christian celebrity. So God, in his grace, sent little Sarah to remind me that in the end, I'm just a big, fat, hairy Greek. (laughs) That he's God and I'm not, and he prefers it that way. He's comfortable with that arrangement. You see, if we don't choose to humble ourselves... If he loves us, he will humble us because he can't use proud people. He can't use, he can't because he can't trust them. That's what happened to Joseph. You know, Joseph had wonderful dreams as a young man. But you know what? They were all about him standing tall. Do you know at the end of, Moses's des- of Joseph's desert experience, do you know when his brothers actually came to him and they all bowed before him? You know, everyone thinks that was the fulfillment of the dream. Just like the sheaves of corn, his brothers came and bowed before him. That the dream was never fulfilled, guys. It was never actually fulfilled. Because when his brothers came and bowed before him, he didn't stand tall. You read the scripture. He bowed down as well. And he wept. And he wept. He chose to bow down and weep. Because God had done that in his heart. It was no longer about him. What's the second lesson in the desert? Verse 10, the Lord says to the people of Israel, when you have eaten and are satisfied, and I just want to say, they're still in the desert, and they're they're still eating manna. You know, manna that they've been complaining about? Why can't we have garlic and cucumbers? I mean, can you imagine after all the Lord did for them, they were complaining they didn't have garlic. No, in Egypt we had garlic, right? And so they were complaining. And then the Lord says to them, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, guys, listen, they're not there yet. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. It's that land right over there that you haven't got yet. But praise him for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." What's the second lesson in the desert? If the first one is the lesson of humility, the second desert, the second lesson of the desert is learning the secret of praise and thanksgiving when it hurts. What separates the spiritual men from the spiritual boys is those who can worship in pain. 
Any, any, any fool Christian can worship at a big conference when everyone else is around and you've just taken a big love offering and it's all going splendidly and you've just had a promotion. But you know what? When you don't understand, when it seems like a long time, when you're eating manna and you long for garlic, when, when, when you're in a desert and, and, and you can see in the distance the place where you might one day build fine houses and settle down to worship the Lord there. That's different. You see, it took 40 years for the people of Israel to get from Egypt to the promised land. If they'd walked in a straight line at an average pace, it would have taken 11 days. They went round and round in circles. The easy bit, folks, was getting Israel out of Egypt. The hard bit was getting Egypt out of Israel. Because in Egypt, where they were slaves, they learned to complain. They learned to feel sorry for themselves. They learned to suck their, the th- suck their thumbs. And do you know, in the desert, they went round and round in circles until they began to learn wait a minute, there's another way instead of grumbling. God instituted the Levites to lead in praise and thanksgiving. And you see, the way it works is like this. Um, I know some of you are South Africans, but you've been here long enough, those of you that are, to have worked out that for us Brits, even the Greek Brits, uh, moaning and complaining is our national pastime. We love it. And the thing we love to moan and complain about the most is the weather. We get quite hysterical about that. Every day we gather together all over this nation and we say, oh, it's another grey day. Oh, isn't it terrible? Oh, it's wet. It's cold. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, it's just, and most of the time we say, oh, it's just drizzle. It's not even proper rain. It's just drizzle enough to get wet, but not enough to enjoy and then, you know, like, like for the first time in years, we get proper snow. And what do we do? Oh, it's terrible, the snow. It's, we're all going to die and get cut off. And, oh, we mustn't go out. It's terrible. Oh, it's horrible. And then, do you know what? One day, one day in July, the sun comes out. And what do we do? We get together and we say, oh, it's really hot. Oh, it's really hot. Oh, it's global warming. We're all going to die of skin cancer. Oh, it's going to be a drought. Oh, isn't it terrible? And we just love it. Whatever it is, we love it. See, that, that has infected the church. That thing in our culture, of the culture of grumbling and complaining has come into the church. And so that we do it instinctively. And God is saying, no, learn a different way in the desert. I'll be honest with you, I don't like mornings. In fact, I hate, loathe, and despise mornings. In fact, it's actually even a theological issue for me. Most other serious theologians don't yet agree with me, but I've always been ahead of my time. I believe that mornings came in with the fall. I cannot believe they were part of God's original creation. You know, I hate mornings. And you know that someone said once, there are two kinds of Christians in this world. There are those who wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord. (laughs) And then there are those who wake up in the morning and say, good Lord, it's morning. (laughs) Well, I've always been a good Lord, it's morning Christian. It's like, it just is. And then, 
And then a, a while ago, someone lent me a, a, a talk by someone which talked about the secret of praise and thanksgiving all the time. Instead of grumbling and complaining, to choose to be thankful and praiseful to God. And what this guy on the talk said, that the secret for him was starting the day right. He said, I decided that I would, if I started the day right, the rest of the day would go well. So he said, what I do as an act of discipline, in the morning when my alarm clock goes off, I open my eyes, and the first thing I do is I say, thank you, Lord, that I'm alive this morning. I thank you that this morning there is air in my lungs. And then he said, the next thing I do is I pull up the duvet cover, and I look at my feet, and I say, I thank you for my feet. I thank you for the toes that wiggle. And then he said, I get out of bed, and I thank the Lord for my ankles. I thank the Lord for my knees. I go right the way up my body to thank the Lord for my body. And then after 10, 15 minutes of this, I'm set fair for the day. Well, when I heard that, I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to start tomorrow morning. I was really excited. I went to bed early that night. I put my alarm clock on. I was so excited. I couldn't sleep for ages. Eventually, I went to sleep. The alarm clock went off. I opened my eyes. I said, good morning, Lord. (laughs) And then I said, Lord, I thank you that I'm alive this morning, that this morning there is air in my lungs. And then I pulled up the duvet cover and I couldn't see my feet. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, it's all gone wrong. And I thought, no. I will not let this defeat me. Did you get the little pun there? Defeat me. You got it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, they didn't get it. <laughs> but you got it. You see, because you're bright, you see. You're quick. I said, no, I will not let this defeat me. So do you know what I did? I thanked the Lord for my stomach instead, which he has fearfully and wonderfully made, and which I have helped him with. Do you see the point, guys? The point is this, there will always be reasons not to be thankful. There will always be reasons not to praise. There will always be reasons, but you know what? God is good all the time. And I don't mean we pretend. I don't mean we don't have times of lament. I don't mean that we don't weep our tears. But even in the midst of tears, we still say, you are good. I say it by faith, and I say it because I love you. You are good. You are worthy all the time. And you know, if we learn the secret of praise and thanksgiving when it hurts, then when we get when the blessing comes, when our, our herds and flocks grow large and our silver and gold increase, then we will not forget the Lord our God. We won't think it's about us because we learnt the secret when we had nothing. Guys, don't waste, don't waste the time in the desert. Don't waste the time when you have nothing because that sets you up when you have everything. Paul said, I have learned the secret to have plenty and to have nothing, to abase and abound in the old-fashioned words in all situations. What's the third and final lesson from the desert? And I believe the most important lesson in the desert. It comes in a lot of places, but it comes in Hosea chapter 2. In the book of Hosea, we read the story of of how God said to Hosea, marry a prostitute, marry Gomer, be faithful to her, love her. She She will desert you, she will betray you, she will commit adultery against you. And then when she's broken your heart, you say to Israel, you are like an adulteress and you've broken my heart, says the Lord. 
It's an amazing prophetic book. But do you know, right in the middle of chapter 2, there's this verse that says, Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I'm now going to allure Israel. What does it mean to allure someone? I'll tell you what it means. It means this. I just want to ask for a moment, uh, guys, men, I just want to ask, put up your hand if you have not yet met the woman of your dreams, the woman who you know is going to be, is to be your wife that you will spend the rest of your life with. If you haven't yet met that woman, put your hand up now, really high. Go on, others, others put your hand up, right up, right up, right up at the front row as well. Right, thank you, thank you. I see those hands. I see those hands. Now, just keep your hands up, guys. All of you, keep your hands up. Now, ladies, just look round. Just look round. Okay, thank you. Put your hands down now. Uh, if I may, if I may, just for a few moments, I'd just like to talk to those, these guys. Um, ladies, you just talk amongst yourselves for a bit. You're good at that. Um, I just want to give some advice. Um, to the guys um, uh, who, who are in this situation. Guys, if you want to allure a young lady, this is what you do. You invite her out for a meal uh, to a restaurant. And before you take her, you go to the restaurant on your own and you have a look at the restaurant. And then you, you, you choose the nicest table, not in front of the toilets, but just in the corner by the window. And you give the waiter a fiver, and you say, could you reserve this table? This will be our table. And then you take her to the restaurant, you sit her down, you give her the menu, and you let her choose anything her little heart desires. And then for the entire evening, you do nothing but ask her questions about herself. And as she's telling you about her whole life story, you sit in rapt attention taking in everything she says. At the end of the meal, you take her home. At, the, at her door, you say, thank you for a wonderful evening. You, you go around the corner. As soon as you get around the corner, you phone her. And you say, I just wanted to phone and to thank you again for a wonderful evening. Now, guys, listen. You don't have to worry about all that nonsense once you've married her. But while you're alluring her, while you're alluring her, Try it and write to me and let me know. Would you know? In Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. I've annoyed a few of you, haven't I? (laughs) In Hosea chapter 2 verse 14, the Lord says this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I am now going to allure Israel. How did he allure Israel? Read it. I will lead her into the desert, and there I will speak tenderly to her. You see, the desert is the place where he allures his people, where he wins us over. It's the place where, where he not only he speaks tenderly to us, but we can hear him speak, because in the desert, all other voices are stilled. Remember in the desert, it's very quiet. It's very quiet in the desert. You can't hear all, everything else is stilled, so you hear his voice. 
You see, he takes us into the desert above all things, that he would return us to our first love, or that he would take us deeper. Because the purpose of God in all this above all else is relationship with us. He created us for relationship. It's all about love. Yes, it's destiny. Yes, it's about his kingdom. Yes, it's about all that. But the heart of it is God loves his creation, and he wants to be with his creation. And he wants to be with the crown of his creation, his people. I finish with this. The Song of Songs. When I first became a Christian, when I was 15, I decided to read through um, the scripture from uh, beginning to end. No one told me what to do, so I started at Genesis and... uh, Uh, When I started at Genesis, it was okay. Exodus was fine. But then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy somehow lost me a little bit. And then we got okay again. We got into Joshua and Judges and the Samuel books and the King books and all those books. And then we started going into the the poetry books and everything. And and I got to Ecclesiastes, and I read that, and I wanted to take an antidepressant. And then after Ecclesiastes, I turned the page, and I thought, oh, Song of Songs. It's a, it's a book about singing. I like singing. Well, that's really nice. I'm going to enjoy this. You see, no one warned me about the Song of Songs. No one told me it was in the Song of Songs. So I thought, that'd be nice after Ecclesiastes, a nice book about singing. And I remember I started reading and I read like this. I thought, who put that in my Bible? Someone spiked my Bible. Have you ever read the Song of Songs? flipping heck it's this it's this raunchy love story between a king and his maiden and it was like good grief I mean have you ever read this I mean let me just read you a little bit there are oh there's some young people here well just this is the beloved saying this about her lover about the king like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. I mean, can you imagine a girl saying that today about her boyfriend? My boyfriend's like an apple tree. <laughs> I love sitting in his shade. <laughs> I mean, it's like... We'll skip the next bit. But listen to this. This is the beloved again. This is, this is the maiden. She says this. Listen, my lover... Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. You see... That's a picture of the king running to his maiden, running to the beloved, and he doesn't force his way into the house. He stays outside, he looks through the window, and he beckons her out. And the picture you see here is, you imagine, is of the king and his maiden running through the fields together, running over the mountains together. And if this was Hollywood, at this point, the credits would come. But you know, it isn't Hollywood because the Bible's more real Hollywood than, than Hollywood could ever be. And so just after this time, just after this moment, 
when, when it's all wonderful, the very next thing that happens is, is we read this in, in uh, Song of Songs chapter 3, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of Scripture. The Beloved is saying this, and I finish with this. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go until I took him to the bedchamber of the one who conceived me. You see, they'd just been together and suddenly he's disappeared. And she says, all night long on my bed. You know, I said, where is the one my heart loves? And she had a choice at that moment. At three o'clock in the morning, she could either say, oh, well, he's not here, never mind, and turn around and go into her spiritual slumber. Or she could get up because her heart yearned in the middle of the night and say, I will search for the one my heart loves. And the picture is of her wandering the deserted streets. Where is the one my heart loves? Where is he? And eventually, she finds the one her heart yearns for. And then she says this, when I found him, I held him and would not let him go. When I found him, I held him and would not let him go until I took him to the room of the one who conceived me, until I took him to the most intimate place of my life. You see, sometimes God hides his face. Sometimes God seems to be distant so that we would choose to not just go to spiritual sleep, but that we would get hungry, we would get thirsty, we would get desperate, and we would get up and we would say, Lord, I long for you, I long for you. There are seasons in the Spirit when, when, when there's the ebb and flow of the Spirit. There are seasons when, when His presence is so close, when it's so wonderful, it's so easy, and everything flows. Then there are seasons where it's dry and it's barren and it's difficult. Guys, why? One season is not better than another. One season leads to another. One season leads to another. And in the barren season, that's when we find out how much do we want him for him. And not just for what he can do for us. How much do we long for him? You know, there are moments when everything else seems to get taken away. And at that point, I find out what I found out when I was 15. I came to Jesus... Not because I wanted to lead Soul Survivor or become a preacher or, or write a book. I came to Jesus because I needed the Savior. Because I, I, I fell in love with the Father. And I thought, I don't care what else happens to me. I want you for you for you. And do you know, God takes us to the desert in order to strip away all the other Christianese nonsense so that we find out again, what am I for? Who do I want? What am I living for? I'm living for you, Jesus. I'm living for you, Father. This is all for you. And guys, as churches, God takes those he wants to use mightily through seasons of barrenness, through seasons of desert, to seasons of, of what are you doing, Lord? It all seems so easy. Why? To humble us so he can use us. To teach us the secret of praise and thanksgiving when it hurts. 
so that when we prosper, we don't forget him and we don't think it's about us. And above all, to allure us, to speak tenderly to us, to draw us back to him so that we're not only filled with the Spirit, but we move in the power of the Spirit. So that when the dreams that we had as young men and women are fulfilled, they don't crush us and kill us because we have been seasoned. And we don't rejoice in the fulfillment of the dreams, but we rejoice in the dream giver. That's what it's about. And you know what? When you're in the middle of the desert, it doesn't feel easy. You want it to end after 25 years. You don't want it to go for the full 40, but God knows what he's doing. Because he wants to bless you. And he wants to make you a blessing. So that when people touch you and me, they touch him. And they don't just touch us. His treasure in jars of clay. I've gone on far, far too long. I apologize. We've landed We're just going to wait on the Lord now for a little bit and we're going to pray and see what he wants to do. Yeah, let's do that. And Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for this family here in St. Albans. I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in the last 10 years. Lord, for the seasons where your spirit has been so present and the seasons, Lord, where it seems sometimes dry and barren. And I thank you that you're the Lord of this church and you have a perfect plan because you love your people and you are tender. And Spirit of God, would you fall upon us? Lord, would you send times of refreshing even to those who are in the desert place right now? Would you allure them? Would you speak tenderly to them? And Lord, I pray for those who have thought that it's somehow been their fault that they've been in the desert. For those who have thought that there's been something wrong with them, that they've been in the desert. Lord Jesus, I ask that you give them revelation now, that they're at the heart of your will. Because you know what you're doing and you're their father. Guys, let's just stand together and wait for him. Let's just stand together and just wait for him for a moment. And Spirit of God, all over this room, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Come, Holy Spirit. We honor you, we welcome you. Times of refreshing. Now just wait for him for a moment. more of you, more of your presence, Lord, the sweetness of your presence. Allure us, Lord, allure us, Lord. Speak tenderly to your people. Thank you. Thank you.
we honor you, Lord. We honor you. Thank you. The Spirit of God's just beginning to rest on some of you now. Don't get anxious and don't worry about anyone else. Just receive him. There's a peace that comes first. The peace of his presence. We ask for more, Lord. We ask for more. We long for more of you. Thank you. Thank you. That's the Lord. It's the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just pray for another wave of your presence, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Now, guys, there's there's just waves of his presence, and in a sense, the first wave is just swept over us and some of you you're sensing look you're just really you know it's him others i just want to encourage you wait there's another wave coming but i just want us just first of all to pray for those if if you know that god's stirring something in you right now if you're just sensing the sweetness of his presence only so that we can identify you to pray and join in with what god's doing just going to ask you just to come and stand at the front here somewhere and just come and stand now because we'd love to pray for you I'm not going to do anything weird to you. We just want to join in and uh, with what God's already doing. So if you know that's you, then would you just come now? Just come and stand here now. That's it. If there's others, just come. That's it. Thank you, Lord. That's it. Just come, take a couple of steps forward if you can. That's it. Just right through. Just come a bit forward. That's it. Because I think there's others that we want to pray for as well. Thank you, Lord, and we ask for more now of your presence. Lord, thank you for what you've begun in these, our brothers and sisters. Now, would you increase it? Would you increase it, Lord? Thank you, Lord. Now, more. More of you. More of you. More of you, Lord. More of you. Now, just receive that. Just receive that. Just receive him. Just receive him. And maybe a few others from the church would just, just quietly just lay hands on these guys and just... All you have to do, you don't have to say a lot, just bless what God's already begun to do. For many of them, it's a time of refreshing. It's a time of healing. It's a time of his presence. Thank you, Lord. Now, more of you. We honor you, Lord. Others in the church who can pray, just just begin to lay hands on these guys. Others of you, just wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And sigh if you want to just maybe. Thank you, Jesus. We honor you. We bless what you're doing. We ask for another wave of your presence. Lord, allure us. Speak tenderly to us. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We honor you, Lord. We honor what you're doing. And don't be afraid of tears. Don't be afraid of the tears. It's okay. It's just a response to God. It's a response to God's love. It's a response to God's grace. It's God setting people free. And I think that there are others here uh, 
that you're, you are, I think God's starting to stir in you a longing. There's a longing for him. Some of you, you're remembering. You're remembering right now when you first met him and how sweet that was. You're remembering when you were first filled with the Holy Spirit, how close he seemed. And somehow you're just longing for that. And you, you, you're just lo- you're lo- you feel like you've been in a bit of a desert, but you're just longing for him to meet you. If that's you, we would love to pray for you. I believe God wants to meet you. He puts the longing there. I just encourage you, would you come forward as well and just stand here at the front, just in the middle here. We'd love to pray for you. That's it. If there's others, just come. He wants to meet with you. Some of you, it's like a yearning. It's like a yearning. Don't be afraid of the yearning. That's it. Come right through. That's it. Don't be afraid. It's the Lord. It's okay. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you meet with them? Would you meet with our brothers and sisters? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let it come. And we just need others in the church who are able to pray just to come and pray. Thank you, Lord. Just come and bless them, Lord. Just fill them with your presence. Fill them with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, we just pray for a fresh season for Forest Town Church. We pray for a fresh season of the sweetness of the presence of the Savior in a whole new way. And it's not that the other season was bad, the other season was good. And thank you, Lord, that you're in charge and you love your people. Let it come. Let it come. Thank you, Lord. Now more, Lord, more of your presence. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. There are one or two others that can just move around and just lay hands on these folk and just just pray a blessing on them and then move on and then pray a blessing on them and then move on. And while we do, guys, I want to encourage the rest of us, let's just worship for a bit. Wherever you are, God, God is here and he wants to meet with you and he wants to bless you. He loves you. He's for you. God is good for you. He is not bad for you. So we're just going to worship him and hang out in his presence as we worship now, as we keep praying.